Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. If you think you know Peter Todd from following his Twitter since 2012, you don't. Peter Todd has been one of the most vocal developers in the Bitcoin space, and for a good reason. He submitted his first Bitcoin code to Bitcoin Core in April 2012, and at one point was number 10 in terms of total commits to Bitcoin's GitHub repo. We talked about some amazing topics, and when I say that you think you know Peter and you don't, is because you may think you know him from Twitter, but Peter has a lot of good intentions. And he does his critiques about Ethereum, Zcash, Ripple, Tyrion, a lot of projects and blockchains. He does it out of love of Bitcoin. And when he does his critiques, they are filled with accurate data. And I was very intrigued to discuss different topics like what happened in 2013 during that epic Was it a hard fork that Bitcoin had to go through or was it a soft fork? Up until 2017, Peter had been writing and calling out tons of scams and very vocal. But recently, he's been very quiet. And we talked about how people are creating lawsuits coming after him because of the work that he's done. And he was very frank about some of these things. We talked about some of the the sexual misconduct allegations against him, the state of crypto Twitter today, talked about stable coins. We went into the nitty gritty details of being able to scale and what that's like, good intentions, lying, disclosures, transparency. It's too much to get into in this intro. So give some love to the sponsors. You're going to be blown away. And I think that your definition of Bitcoin maximalism will change by the end of this episode. I promise you, you'll have a much more open mind and I'm excited to release this episode. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder, like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like. Um, And I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees and I don't like that. So check it out. BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. That's BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. 
So check it out. Over the years, a lot of companies have tried doing crypto social networking. But the problem is that there are a lot of really good social networking apps already out there like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. How do we build a social network that's perfect for crypto? Well, I want to talk about Pepo. Pepo is an amazing social media app that's built for the crypto community. What's really cool about it is that you can get rewarded for uploading and putting out good content and you can also reward with crypto people who put up content that you really really like. It's fast and simple and it's the first crypto powered app to be approved by the Apple and Google App Stores. You can find me on Pepo right now at Charlie Shrem, the same handle as my Twitter, and I'm going to be posting interviews, travel videos, and more. So make sure you check out Pepo. It's super cool. pepo.com. Enjoy it. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, "Hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen?" And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. I'm here today with Peter Todd. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. Peter, you you submitted your first bit of of code to to Bitcoin Core in April 2012. You really really got into into Bitcoin extremely early on. Um, we talked very briefly earlier, and it's a stupid it's a stupid statistic, but at some point you were uh, number ten or eleven in terms of total commits to to Bitcoin Core. Um, and you you were very active lately. You've been working on some some newer projects. I want to talk about that, but the first thing I really wanted to talk about that that I you know. I, when I do research for the show, and and I don't have other people do research, I do the research myself. That's one aspect of the show that I really don't want to give up. Um, I find myself like um, creating like two pages of of research. There's like one page of quotes and information where I agree with the guest, and there's like another page of quotes and information where I may not agree with the guest. And there are some guests where the non agreement is is higher, especially when it comes to different blockchains where I'm you know I I really don't agree, but I'm trying to push. To get more honest and truthful answers, it's I'm, it's, a, it's a learning progress. But one of the things that I do agree with you, and I'm really happy that you said this quote because a lot of the I guess a lot of people from the developer community may may not agree with you with this quote was you had said that you think community stuff is much more important than software, and, and you kept going on and you said there are far more risks involved in community. Um, where software you can work around problems relatively easy. Um, and it was such an interesting quote to say. It's like it, it, I feel like it's a complete uh, it, it, it's an opposite approach where a lot of people would say that community aspects can be worked out. Rather, software problems are are harder to work out. What do you think about that? Well, it, you know, I think that kind of comes down to how you, you, you kind of get less opportunities for experimentation with community. You know, there's a lot fewer communities out there that you can't. I mean, with software, for instance. I can create a, you know, a test rig as an example and repeatedly test the software over and over again in different scenarios, try different things, you know, collaborate with other people who will try their own different things. None of that applies in community. You know, it's not like you know, we say get to rerun the U.S. elections over. That's a good point. 
But I feel like with Bitcoin and with, I know, the larger crypto community, um, community is such an important aspect because, you know, don't forget, like this whole thing that we're doing here is this one big experiment. Like you said, it's an experiment. And, and, and so what would you say? I like to say that um, Bitcoin is like 50 percent. So we say it's like a socioeconomic experiment. Bitcoin is uh, 50% math and development, but the other 50% is uh, the users, people that use it. It's how we uh, buy, sell, hold Bitcoin, but also how we kind of act and react towards money and value. Um, that's an, such an essential part of our community. And there have been times where um, community has been involved in decisions and things like that. But I guess, like, how do you quantify community? Has anyone tried to to dive in and to to do like you know to create metrics around the community and look at it from like a historical standpoint over the past ten years and how it's evolved and changed? You you are very active in the community, um, extremely. Not just being, you know, there are a lot of developers who um, who don't write, who didn't write as much as you did, who didn't submit. Um, as many Bitcoin improvement protocols that are very active on Twitter and and active in a lot of places, and there are, there are ones that are that are not. Um, you you found a way to balance both um, over the years. Wh- how do you feel the community is right now? Like at a at this point, like going into we're the first days of twenty twenty, we're entering now twenty twenty. Looking back at twenty nineteen, do you look back on like crypto Twitter or um, how the community has? negatively or positively affected Bitcoin over the past two years? Well, uh, I point out like where you go talk about balance. I mean, out of the people commonly thought of as developers, you know, I I keep having to point out, I I don't do very much, you know, and I never really did that much um, direct development. What I did do was, you know, critique and evaluate other ideas and come up with proposals and so on. But you know, sort of, in a way, sort of bit of an outsider there. And I think that fits in well with sort of community role and that, in, you know, invariably that kind of stuff, if you want it to, can go into interacting with communities and talking to people about, you know, how proposals work and so on. You know, one example being um, with SegWit. SegWit's not my idea, you know. I didn't participate very much in coming up with SegWit. But one of the things I did do is I went and sat down and went through the source code and evaluated it and did a write-up of, well, what changes are being proposed with SegWit and how will this you know, impact um, Bitcoin? Yeah, and that's actually a very community sort of thing, interfacing between people doing the actual work and people who want to learn more and understand it. You know, similarly, I was you know, some of the pe- you know, very, very few people willing to go and talk to miners about this stuff. And I think for good reasons, people, you know, kind of didn't want to get into that politics, but I was willing to go do it. And I could partly do it because I wasn't, you know, a key developer working directly on this stuff. So almost like finding yourself as a, not a mediator, but someone who can step their foot into into both camps or, or a lot of different camps. What, so, I mean, why was that so controversial? Um, and And I'm asking because... Don't forget, I had a year where I missed, you know, like early 2015 to early 2016. I was completely out of all communication and and internet and everything. So um, the early days of when that started to fester, um, you know, um, don't forget when, when I went into prison, Gavin was still, you know, kind of 
uh, working on Bitcoin and 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 had I think had the main you know was one of the maintainers and then I get out and that that all changed um, and I had read that you were very um, you had written a lot and critiqued a lot about um, about that and about Gavin and and then and then further on when when scaling came to be what what happened why did I guess my question is Peter like did it need to be controversial and if not why did it become controversial what what happened. Well, you know, I got into Bitcoin in part because I looked at that system and realized this is going to be political. And I thought that sounded interesting and sounded like something I'd like to go work on and be a part of. Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean by that? Well, because Bitcoin, the technology itself, you know, the, the very fact you have a block size creates a political you know, pressure there between people who will do better with bigger block size and people who won't. You know, that is an inherently political question. And it is not something where everyone can go in. Like one of your more stark examples is, you know, if you're the guy behind chain analysis, yeah. anything that doesn't increase the block size is terrible for you because you need that data publicly to be able to go do your analysis on it. Right there, you have a very big winner and a very big loser. You know, people who want privacy and people who want to eliminate privacy and profit off it. That is an inherently political question. And it's something that, you know, the Bitcoin community had to go navigate. And of course, I was part of that discussion. And I saw that very early on that that would be an inherently political question. I'm not a fan of chain analysis. That, um, and it's not that specific company that I'm not a fan of. There's another one. I think it's like Elliptic or whatever like that. Um, yeah, there, there's a whole bunch of them. Um, you know, ch chain analysis is the one that sort of, uh, if you will, the, the trademarks become a bit genericized. Yeah. But there is a whole bunch of them. And, you know, it's amazing actually just how shady some of them are. I mean, I've sat down with people from competitors to chain analysis, you know, competitors who you wouldn't really know the names of. And I came away with the impression that they're straight up scammers scamming banks and government. They will, they will, the, the thing is, they will put with, with, with an, this is the thing with chain analysis, with, with an audit, with, uh, with, so, so non-crypto related, when we're talking about like having a company come in and do like a forensic analysis and audit, uh, for tax purposes, for fraud or for embezzlement, for, you know, the same thing that you'd use chain analysis for with crypto, but for the traditional industry, when, when you have those, when you have an audit and it's a certified audit, the company stands behind it. But with chain analysis and all these other companies, and again, I'm not talking specifically that company, but with all these companies, they always have an out and I'll tell you yeah. a story. They always have an out because then they can say we are 99.9% .9 confident, but at the end of the day, it's impossible to be a hundred percent. So it's more yep. of like their opinion. The problem is court system. And then, and then basically they will agree with anything that uh, they'll agree with a lot of things, especially with the data. Um, and so it's more validation with the company's, or various government agencies that hire them. And I am the perfect example. It happened to me. Um, yep. And it was a pretty funny story, actually. But one of these companies was hired by, um, during a litigation, because they had claimed that I had stolen like 5,000 Bitcoin. And the company said the analysis that was submitted to the judge, and this analysis was used by the judge to, to freeze all my assets before I was even served. Because they had found a, a Bitcoin address, a vanity address that I had created called like one Shrem. And in that account, there was uh, the transfer for those Bitcoins. But because they because it was so apparent to them and it looked so much like 
this exactly was my Bitcoins because it was a vanity address that I created. They didn't do any other research and they didn't have any other data. Now, luckily, because the, the, the report was incorrect and very easily provable, I was able to throw it out in court. But that report caused me significant harm, financial harm, because it yep. was wildly incorrect. In fact, the person whose Bitcoin they were is a very, very, very well-known person. I'm happy I was able to keep that person a secret to not dox them. But that person went to the judge and said, hey, judge, these are my coins. Yeah. Chain analysis are fucking idiots. <laughs> so well, I was it, personally it, it, I, hurt. I spent $100,000 defending myself that just one month, just in that well, first it, month. And I'd point out, I mean, you go say chain analysis are idiots. I don't think that's true. I think they know that they're wrong on stuff like this. You know, that's the impression I get talking to. I mean, you know, I, I used to be friends with um, uh, one of the, was it John Levin or something? You know, one of the co-founders of Chainalysis. And I never really got the impression he cared that much about getting it right. I got the impression he was more interested in making some money on this. And I even more get the impression in like other people in that field too. You know, I mean, I sat down at a table at uh, dinner once with, you know, someone claiming to be a founder of one of these companies. And he was basically, yeah, well, we're just, you know, giving writing up reports that are basically, you know, what the other side wants us to go write. We don't care. You know, it's just, it's just sort of the nature of this stuff. Like the sort of people attracted to this stuff aren't that ethical. And, mm -hmm. you know, going back to the block size thing, like that's just an example of something you have to deal with. You have to deal with the fact that not everyone, you know, in the space is going to be ethical. So when did that, you know, that whole thing kind of get controversial? I like guess going back to that question, was there was there a moment in time with were there external forces that wanted to, I guess, take control of Bitcoin? And we actually did see that happen with uh, Bitcoin Satoshi Vision or BSV or Bcash or whatever. Yeah, there's a couple different iterations of that, and you, you know, for me personally, um, the you know how I became you know worldly well known in the Bitcoin community is because of me arguing with Gavin and Drayson. And that would have been back on Bitcoin Talk. Um, and I think, you know, and I can kind of pinpoint the exact post. Uh, you know, I could dig it up somewhere. But essentially, it's where Gavin was saying, well, you know, we don't need a block size limit because miners have this natural incentive to limit the size of their blocks and so on. And I was one of the people who realized a selfish mining attack existed, which incidentally, Emin didn't, you know, Emin Gunsur did not invent first. You know, quite a few people noticed it because it's pretty obvious. And but, you know, I happen to write up a very nice explanation of why this minute. was an attack. So I, I have an unreleased version of the show with Emin. <laughs> I'm debating if I'm going to release it. And he claims he came up with that. Yeah. You know, he he simply did not. Like multiple people noticed in various iterations. I think uh, the thing I would give him credit for is he's the first person to really sit down and work out the math carefully on it. But the attack itself got, got discovered multiple times. You know, I noticed it and I'm not the first. There's at least like two other people who've noticed it before I did. You know, it's a pretty obvious attack, really, if you think through the incentives of a miner. You know, what's less obvious and kind of more work is to go create an academic model of it. But I think that kind of shows the disconnect between academia and the rest of us where we don't care if we can pin down the percentage to within, you know, half a percent. Like my when I did my analysis, the numbers I got was like 50%. I was like, oh, 50% you know, is the threshold for this? Oh, that's terrible. And I never bothered to do a more careful analysis. And then does a more careful analysis and gets, what is it, 25% or 30% or something like that. But for a developer, the difference between those two analyses doesn't matter. 
You know, for an academic, it really matters. For a developer, it doesn't. If you you have people like like Emin uh, Gunsir, you have uh, Jeff Garzik, Gavin. Um, you have um, who who's the other guy who got butthurt and left? Mike Hearn, right? Those yeah, four yeah, people. If uh, imagine a non-Bitcoin world, right? And imagine if you looked at those four people and their credentials, and they were like on the team page of a website for a company that was raising money. Those four people could raise a billion dollars. I mean, their credentials go back such a long time. Dozens of people. But wait, so so here's my so I guess here's my thing. What I guess honestly, their their credentials aren't that impressive. Okay, so they obviously you know are smart tech workers who you know would get a high salary in any normal circumstance. But you know, like there's a lot of smart tech workers out there. So is it a natural progression? That my question is: You think this is a natural progression of Bitcoin that? people come and go that we're weeding out almost like a natural selection type of thing, the market of, no, of our industry. I, I think that's what you're seeing. In fact, I, I think what happened with Gavin um, was just the standards increased and he was never that active in Bitcoin. You know, a lot of people try to present him as being really, really active, but he actually wasn't. If you actually look at, you know, who did the work of maintaining Bitcoin, actually Vladimir did far more of that even back when Gavin was active, you know, um, Gregory Maxwell has done some careful, you know, careful analysis, is looking at commits and so on. And it, again, like the impression I got seeing that progress was just Gavin wasn't good enough, and unfortunately, he wanted to be good enough to have a much bigger role. And I think with Mike Curran, it's the same problem. With Jeff Garzik, it's the same problem. You know, none of these people were happy that they were getting pushed out of the community because they just weren't good enough. But there are no roles. That's what I never understood. Did I ever tell you the story of when Gavin but and I? People, but people want to have roles. You know, I, I think Gavin liked that role of being chief scientist of Bitcoin, and he just didn't have the technical skills to do it. You know, I, I think me challenging him on this issue of block size and what minor incentives are, the impression I got was that really pissed him off because here's this, you know, total nobody who's just popped up, has no experience, never contributed a line of code at the time. You know, or, I mean, the first line of code was like, a, like fix a, a grammar mistake. And in my commit message, I had a spelling mistake, you know. But because I had a good idea, people listened to that idea and didn't care who I was. And that, you know, that was a serious challenge to him. And then what happened? He got, I guess, butt hurt. Is that, is that, is, is it as simple as that? I, I I wouldn't say it's quite as simple as that, but I think it's one of many examples where you know he got butt hurt and was gradually pushed out. You know what? You know why I ask these questions is one day in twenty years from now, um, someone's going to go back and ask like, what happened to these early people? And so um, you were there, I was, I wasn't to some of these people, but you know, um, you're not the only one I ask this question to, and and you know, try to chronicle or or document from different perspective um, what happened and and I guess what we can learn from it. Um, do you think there was? Do you think there there were any aspect of like a toxic faction of the community that pushed kind of those people out? Um, I, I I have to say I'm not sad. I was never sad to see Mike Hearn go. Um, I you know his 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 post that he wrote was the dumbest fucking shit I've ever read. Um, and then you know and then the day I get arrested, um, he fucking goes on the BBC and he starts talking shit on me. Who does that? Who who does that? Give give it one day. I'm not even out of solitary confinement yet. So I'm well, not sad to see that guy go. I, I, you know, I'm sure he saw that as a great opportunity to push his goals. Stupid. Anyway, so 
Do you think there's a fear that we could potentially be losing uh, potential good developers uh, in the future? And I know you, you understand my question, but it's part of the system, right? So I actually made this point to, uh, of all people, um, Zuko, um, because you know we were in discussions actually for me to go work on what you know what's now um, named Zcash. Zuko wound up hiring Gavin rather than me as an advisor, and you know the state of reasoning he gave was he thought I was toxic and Gavin wasn't. And I pointed out, well, look, you know, I think in the context of development, Gavin's actually the toxic guy here because he's willing to go around, you know, try to bypass peer review and lie about things. That is much, much more toxic than even if you take at face value that, you know, I was arguing with people on, you know, the development IRC list and things like that. You know, the real toxicity is people who go lie. That's like one of the most corrosive things to technology. And unfortunately, I think Gavin was willing to do that. You know, Mike Hearn definitely was willing to go do that. You know, it's his um, sort of rage quit. It's very easy to go pinpoint that. And, you know, it's been quite a few months since I last looked at it, if not more. But you look at what he said about uh, replaced by fee. What he said was just a straight up lie and he knew it. Peter, you've you've gotten in trouble for not like trouble, trouble, but people have come at you very hard because you've called them out. You mentioned Zuko. Um, I remember there was a I don't know if it's still going on, but there was a, a case. I mean, didn't this was weird when I was researching some random person filed like a sexual harassment case against you, but you had filed something first. And then Zuko comes out and like like certifies it or puts puts in a, a uh, uh, not a deposition, but but uh, an affidavit. Like what the f- why was why was he involved in that? Yeah. Dec- what the Dec- hell is that? That was the weirdest oh. thing. What was the involvement there? Well, so I'm suing um, Isis Lovecraft for uh, defamation. And she called you a rapist on Twitter. Yeah, or rapey, know, rapey, or it, whatever. It, I saw it. No, rapist. Um, it, it, and that's uh, that's an active case right now. So you know, I'm sure you Let's you would not know talk about you, uh, it. Then I thought you, it was you, over. Uh, yeah, there's some stuff I can go say, and uh, what I you know I, I can go say what's in the case documents, and basically, you know, Zuko's involvement there is I suspect. Um, Isis Lovecraft and possibly him worked to go fabricate, you know, some of these allegations because they happen to go come out at times very convenient for them to go shut up criticism of Zcash. It's a very ugly thing. And Isis, there's a much bigger history here. I mean, if you look at um, Tor with uh, Jacob Applebaum and of the people who accused Jacob Applebaum, well, two of them are working at Zcash and it looks like Isis Lovecraft has also done work for Zcash. So, you know, it's a very ugly and very expensive thing, unfortunately. When this comes out um, and all the data comes out, uh, it could potentially be a very, very shameful thing for, for Zcash. And, and this is why yep. you don't have leaders, by the way, FYI. This is why you don't have leaders because you're only as strong as your weakest link. Um, but it was interesting when I was going through my case, uh, the best the best crypto news source that was the most accurate uh, one was actually the block. I was very impressed because I didn't uh, think they would be. Like CoinDesk kept getting everything wrong, um, but the block was the, was one of the only ones that were that was completely accurate. Although they well, do a lot of trolling too. As much as people make fun of the block for charging a ton of money, hypothetically at least, it would give them the money to do proper journalism. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, like um, quite a while back, I decided to go and stop, you know, working with. Uh, um, Coindesk and, you know, replying to their interviews and so on, because they just kept on getting stuff wrong. And I was just getting frustrated with it, didn't think it was worth my time. You know, and it's sad saying that because, you know, I mean, I had friends at Coindesk, I 
I knew some of the people there quite well, and I thought they were good reporters. But there's only so much you can do, and you just don't have the time to do a good story. That's true. Crypto journalism, I was, I think I was talking to Pete Rizzo about it, and he said that the deadlines are like hours, whereas in investigative journalism, they have weeks, months to write a story. Yep. But things move too fast here. But I yep. have to say, they, they ha- I do pay for the block. Um, I do. I, it's one of the few paywalls that I'm willing to pay for. Um, among, I like the information, too. The information is a great site. But talking about like investigative journalism and reading, I relied on a lot of your writings um, on PeterTodd.org for um, information that I didn't have to worry about being um, – what's the word I'm looking for? Information that wasn't uh, controlled or, or, or you, know, you didn't have a bias or anything like that. But you stopped writing in 2017. I know you're working on other things. You were very vocal. Um, you called out a lot of scams. What happened? Uh, why did you stop publishing you know, for the past two years? Well, you know, ultimately, I think I was trying to go work on uh, this thing called uh, Proof Marshall and a few other projects. And you know, it's kind of a matter of time. And uh, I also find, like, if you will, the return on investment on doing accurate reporting on scams. I mean, I think, you know, Tyrion, I think, is a good example of mm. something where I you know, put a fair bit of effort into valuing it honestly. Like, it's, you don't get much out of that. You know, when I, I um, for R3, actually, I did a carefully done report on Ripple. And I tell you, the sheer amount of time that I would have spent just ignoring notifications in Twitter about that one report vastly overweighs how much I got paid for that. You know, at the time, like R3 was trying to be a unbiased um, consulting firm for other co- companies in the banking space. And that was supposed to be an unbiased report on Ripple. But like the sheer amount of hate that you get from people who hate that, you know, you've done their investment harm, it just adds up. You know, it's like it's sort of like it's not so much a personal thing. It's just it's annoying. I know. And you up your time. It, it's annoying and you only have 24 hours in a day and yeah. you're not getting much out of it. Do you think you're writing, though? I mean, I feel like when I, if I write. Or even on the show, I do have a little bit of a bias. I don't know, you know, I'm biased towards Bitcoin or I'm biased towards towards me. Uh, do you think that you do have, you know, even like a small developer bias or you look at things more on a, you know, you, 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 ha- you, you had some really good um, um, analysis. And, you know, I love going through your old tweets and going through some, you know, articles that have been, I love, you're one of those people who, um, whenever you, you, you'd write a tweet, you'd have articles about your tweets. Like, it's just so funny how that's journalism today. Right. Um, but it's, you, it's a lot cheaper than yeah. <laughs> uh, paying investigators. You talk about, you know, you mentioned lying a lot and good intentions. And I like this because I believe that good intentions are not transferable. And I think you do too. So when you have a, a, a new project launched today and, you know, you could have the, the leader of this project could be um, the most well-loved 100% approval rating in the whole entire world. It could be run by, you know, I don't know who's the most well-loved Gandhi. Let's just say, I don't know yeah. the, the Dalai Lama. But if there are not technological uh, safeguards in place that, that, allow for um that don't allow for for certain precedents to move forward then then this whole thing you know what are we what are we doing here and well a a point i like to make to people is that most like most scammers have an incentive to appear nice you know you usually the way you go pull off a scam is with sort of a big tent approach where everyone's invited to go participate you know we've always got good things to say about each other and so on like someone um you know, like Craig Wright is actually an exception. You know, Craig Wright's got this very sort of combative approach, which is quite unusual, actually. 
in sort of the field of scammers. You know, usually scammers want to appear nice. And because being nice makes it harder to have criticism. What about Richard Hart and Hex? Is that a good example? You know, I actually don't really know much about them. And, you know, in term, and also like where you talk about bias, I think that actually is a good example of my bias, which is I am biased to look into things that are more reputable, right? Like someone like Richard Hart, all I ever hear about is this is just an obvious scam and it's total nonsense, which means I can't actually say it's a scam because I don't know. I've never bothered looking at it. You know, so I, I really don't know much about it. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder, like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees. And I don't like that. So check it out. BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. That's BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. And thanks for listening to Untold Stories. Over the years, I've learned a lot from crypto winters, a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. Even in the few weeks since they launched Pepo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security. It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle. In your view, what's the definition of scam? 
Because that word gets thrown around a lot. Like tone vase will call scam something or you will something different. I'll call something different. Everyone's different. I, I think the, the key thing is when you're lying to your customers about what they're getting. Yeah, I, like I have no quant, you know, as an example, when Zuko came to go ask me to go give a quote about Zcash, um, I'll see if I don't remember this word for word, but the quote I gave him was basically, let's see if I remember it. I, I, given that Zcash, um, you know, has nearly had, uh, you know, inflation causing like technical fault in the math, I think it's very brave for them to press on to go launch this currency given the risks and I think, you know, the, the pri- you know, privacy advantages are potentially worth it. You know, that's the kind of like thing I would say is good marketing. It acknowledges, you know, what you're doing. It may be very, very risky. It may not even be a good idea, but you're giving people, you know, what you told them you're, you're getting. Meanwhile, it would have been what, maybe one or two years later where Zuko did a talk at uh, the Chaos Computing Conference, um, would be 32C3, where he describes Zcash as relying on the exact same kind of math that you know protects your web browsing. That's that's just not true. It is a much much more riskier type of cryptography than everything else that we go use. You know, and it's okay to go push a product that's risky. I've got no qualms about that. Interesting. Got to be I, honest about it. This is a very interesting point that you're making, and I and I and I agree with you. Um, so well, so like, if- remember, as a hobby, like. I like cave exploration. Cave exploration is really, really dangerous, you know. And I've done some really dangerous things. Oh, you mean real caves? Yeah. Oh, it, oh wow. It, you know, uh, some people would look at it and say, "No, no, people shouldn't do that. This is terrible. It's so dangerous. Like, why are you doing this?" Where I say, "But I know the risks. I know exactly what I'm getting into." You know, there's there's nothing wrong with that. It's you know, it's my life. It's my choice. So theoretically speaking, if 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 someone um, had an idea to launch a new blockchain and, and literally on the outset said, listen, I have an idea. It's extremely experimental. It may not work. I'm not going to do an ICO. It's going to be like, you know, mineable or I don't know, some other consensus algo or something, whatever. Um, if they kind of like said, if that was the disclosure, if they had said that, or even if like a theory, if, you know, you, you were very public about, you know, uh, about debating with Vitalik, but if, if 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 on the if there's a if there was a public speech the first day that Vitalik ever publicly talked about Ethereum and this was his consistent message and said this is extremely risky it it probably won't work and it can't scale do you think people would be as critical of Ethereum as as they are today or at least people like me no and I'll point out I mean I used to be uh, more friendly with the Ethereum community you know I mean I, I got invited um, off to the you know, headquarters in Zook as an example, and hung out with them for a week, you know, back in, was it 2014 or 2015 or something. And, but over time, I learned more about how Ethereum was actually being marketed, you know, what Ethereum people were actually telling people rather than just the view I got from sort of the inside um, through developers. And I realized, you know, I'm not comfortable with this. Like if you want to, you know, release a thing, which is dangerous, but you admit it, that's, that's no qualms for me, but you know, saying that this thing, for instance, scales when it doesn't, that really bothers me. Do you think Satoshi yeah. should have said that this was dangerous and risky? I think he, I think he did actually, in some of the writings on on the forums. But um, yeah, Satoshi themselves, I, you know, nothing I've read there really bothers me. Although certainly, I think some people have, um, 
advertise Bitcoin in ways that are dishonest. You know, and I think that was actually part of the block size debate and part of you know, why, I, why I was willing to become involved with it, because I wanted to make sure that the public was informed about you know, Bitcoin. What and, do you mean? What, what type of lies? Well, you know, people saying that like, Bitcoin can scale easily by just increasing the block size. And I, I think given what we knew about the technology, even back then, that was clearly not true. It was clearly not, so. It was clearly not true, but it took a long time for someone to to understand everything well enough to come to that conclusion. So for you, it was easier. I, I, I disagree. Um, and if you look at the early history of Bitcoin, it probably took about what is it two or three days? You know, after the very first post on the cryptography mailing list. For someone to point out the obvious, which is this doesn't scale. And what did Satoshi say? Uh, you know, I'd want to go double check, but I'm pretty sure Satoshi just acknowledged that. You know, hopefully we'll figure out something later. Interesting. Yeah. That's so cool because it leaves open the opportunity and the door to, to scale the right way. And instead of having a preconceived notion of this is how we're going to scale. And this is how, like, we don't, you know, we don't have a, a leader or whatever. Yeah. Well, it, it, at least if you believe my current... Satoshi was talking about payment channels a long, long, long time ago, you know, long before Lightning ever came on the scene. And it sounds like Satoshi's, you know, ideas about how they could work were all wrong. You know, from that mindset, I think it'd be quite reasonable to say, hey, we could make this thing work in the future. And I think Lightning is definitely a big part of the way there. You know, Lightning itself is not perfect, and it definitely has scaling limitations. You know, it's not true scalability in the, you know, sort of hypothetical um, comp sci comp sci way in all cases, but it does get us very very close, you know, compared to Bitcoin at release. Smart and scaling is like, not fast scaling. Well, it's also like it's not easy, and it doesn't necessarily work for everything. It, 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 you know, it's interesting. Like Ethereum has um, has tried to go develop things like Lightning on Ethereum. Um, you see that with Plasma, for instance. Sure, but Ethereum has a much harder technical challenge than Lightning does. Lightning is about moving money in two directions. Ethereum wants to do like arbitrary smart contracts with that same kind of technology. And there's just no you know, easy, cut-and-fit solution to do that. What happens when the Ethereum blockchain gets too big? Um, I looked at the, the data this morning, and almost almost no one. And guys, like Ethereum lovers, like, like listen, I own ETH too, full disclosure. Um, but... This is not. This is a scary statistic. Very, very few people on Ethereum are actually maintaining copies of of the of the blockchain. Um, and if you look at Bitcoin, you have tens of thousands of people, myself included, that do it. It's part of the culture, um, and it's something that is taught very, or, or very. Cut out, it's more than just part of the culture. It's technically easy. Yes. You know, it's it's. It would be hard for it to not be part of the culture because it's just so easy to do. It is. It's not a difficult thing to do. So. My, my question is, you know, Bitcoin's development roadmap is to continue scaling the right way and to continue allowing, um, not just allowing, but almost like a tenement is to, to, uh, to, to allow um, as many people as possible around the world to maintain the ledger. And that's like that's Bitcoin's success um, and to make it easy, to make the user interface, to make it not only, like you said, part of the culture. But let's look at Ethereum and, and I, I, not to... Not to, to to come down on Ethereum hard, but I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about all other blockchains who don't make this something that's that needs to be a priority. 
But those other chains are growing very, very, very quickly. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of gigabytes. And the amount of people that are maintaining that ledger is declining extremely fast. And I don't think, and I'm not just talking about Ethereum, I'm talking about a lot of, you know, projects. um, So so one example is Ripple, where so few people have maintained a copy of this data that literally a whole chunk of it's gotten lost. Holy shit. Really? Yeah. And also, like, it kind of gets into, like, technical questions, too, of exactly how do nodes work. You know, on Bitcoin, we've really pushed for nodes that actually have, a cop- you know, full copy of the history. And also actually verify it prior to saying, hey, you know, I'm fully synced up. You're ready to go trust me. Whereas in Ethereum and Ripple and so on, they have all kinds of fast sync options where, you know, you just trust that the rest of prior history is correct and the rules have been followed. And unfortunately, that creates social scenarios where it's very easy for rules to get broken. Exactly. That was my point that you said so perfectly. It comes back to community. It comes back. It comes circle it right back to this whole thing being a huge socioeconomic experiment that will be, you know. Remember, this is social outcomes determined by technological outcomes, right? It's not like, I guess the difference is, It'd be very hard to create a social outcome that was different in the case of, say, Ripple or Ethereum, because the technology is fundamentally opposed to a social outcome of everyone validating. You know, the technology makes that social outcome very unlikely. Equally, it'd be very unlikely for the social outcome of Bitcoin to be nobody validates because the technology makes it so easy to do that. You know, you can't really divorce one for the other. They tend to be intertwined in quite tight ways. So what's the future then? Well, I mean, the future I'm willing to go predict on is I think we're going to see Lightning continue to go grow because it's scaling that actually works reasonably well. I suspect, you know, people are going to be unhappy about the level of centralization of Lightning. And I think people are going to be equally unhappy that the level of centralization of Lightning isn't high enough for them to go control it. So it's like a perfect medium, almost like a balance. Yeah, you know, I mean, not everyone's going to be happy about that. And at least... If some of the projects I'm working on continue to develop or, you know, other people take up those approaches, I think we're going to see a lot more genuine sort of smart contract type stuff. Often, you know, centralized finance or audited finance or so on that does build on Bitcoin, but in ways that don't need sort of cooperation of everyone. You know, they don't need all the data in one place. They don't follow a sort of crazy Ethereum ethos of like all your eggs in one basket. And I, I think there's technological ways to do this a lot better. And I think the issue we've had is it's a lot harder to go make money because like most technology that works doesn't need a token. It's a good, very good point. Yeah. And the problem with tokens is it constrains the development of technology to artificially have this need for a token just so people can go fundraise. And that's what we saw happen. Yep. So- I mean, it's it's what we've seen happen in, for instance, in Tyrion, where like it's timestamping. Timestamping is really easy. You know, it's so easy. The core of open timestamps was literally like something I threw together in a weekend. So what but, happened there? Well, you know, someone wanted to get $25 million to go fund their company and hire a bunch of employees. And, you know, if you're going to do that, the easiest way to do it is with a token. And unfortunately, people who are willing to go do that are also going to be willing to go and not tell the truth about what their technology actually does. You know, like with Tyrion, I... Like, you know, you, you probably saw the blog post I had on it, but yeah. what they lied about was really, really simple. 
It was just they lied about the latency that the you know, that their solution had. And the irony of that is because they had a pile of money to go deal with, they could have easily tweaked it. So at least on those numbers, it was better than you know the open timestamps. But they didn't even bother to do that. I think it just sort of shows how if nobody's willing to criticize this stuff and there's no pushback on this, you might as well just go lie about whatever you can and do the marketing you can. And you know, if the outcome of that is, well, if you'd gone and bought Tyrion tokens, you would be significantly down right now. And if you had a lot of them, you'd be really, really down because liquidity's poor. But I mean, no one's going after them. Well, not that we know about. Yeah, not that we know about. So, I'll point out, like, for anyone you know thinking of doing any of this stuff, keep in mind that SEC statute limitations might be longer than uh, you'd like, and it may be they just have a big backlog of cases to work through. Like, lack of prosecution doesn't necessarily mean you're safe. Yeah, you could say that again. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So, um, one, you know, we're talking about critiquing, and I feel like one of the um, the topics that I I uh, still struggle with our stable coins because I I still get nervous that more and more today um, people that are coming into the space view stable coins as a safe alternative to um, their fiat uh, world that they live in. So what I mean by that is um, I'm seeing thousands of people say I'd rather keep two million dollars in USDT than keep yeah. two million dollars in my bank account because it's crypto. Yeah, like it's very uh, wrong. It, it's like, it's unsafe. Tether's a funny thing because it's. I, I, I think the safe thing we could say about Tether is, if you think Tether is safer than your bank account, and you're correct, I do not want to live in the country you live in. Certainly, for some people, it will be. But man, like you know, like part of Tether's value is, I think that it is kind of sketchy. And that they're not revealing absolutely everything, because if they did that aggressively, of course, they'd just get all the funds seized. Equally, it's very funny how the Tether FUD has actually been kind of proven incorrect by actual court filings, where it's like, oh, hang on. Actually, they did have all the money backing it, and they didn't just run away with it. And the only reason they're somewhat illiquid right now is because it got seized by the government. Like This is all very sort of counterintuitive and doesn't really fit the narratives. And, and then, of course, you get the other side of like stable coins, which is the sort of so-called decentralized algorithmic ones. And I think they're actually much more risky than people realize. Yeah, because they have admin keys. Well, not just that. I mean, let's even ignore the admin keys, which is a huge problem. But like the actual technology of them seems really prone to failure. You know, a lot of people who know a lot more about you know tech, like high finance than I do, have looked at them and say, you know, like the economics of these things are going to blow up. Because incentives will get out of whack. Someone asked me the other day and said, Charlie, like, um, would you recommend I put um, my ETH into, is it die? Die, die, right? Make yeah, it die. die. And I, so um, I, I'm not, uh, I won't recommend anything until it's been like super stress test. So I looked and I said, okay, um, this is cool. And it is cool. Like, don't get me wrong. It's all super cool fucking shit. I'm, I'm like you. I'm like a nerd. And it's, it's really cool to, you know, put money into a smart contract and start earning interest. And someone else decentralized can borrow mon- that yeah. money. It's, it's, it's cool. It, but, it feels like uh, you're in a Gibson novel. Yeah, exactly. But it's unsafe because it's untested. And people will lose money. Now, does that mean we yep. shouldn't use it? No, we should experiment. We should have fun. But 
these these products are going to market way too quickly and they're advertising on podcasts like mine. I don't you know, I don't have any distributed finance companies uh, advertisers on this show solely because I'm nervous to recommend people to them um, when they could fail tomorrow. And then those people are going to yeah. come back to me and say, Charlie, what the fuck? And I, like, I'm a very libertarian person. I, I'm very much of the sort of buyer beware type of thing. But part of buyer beware is accurate understanding of what, what you're getting into. And that gets really hard for some of these products. I mean, um, just just today and was it? Yeah, today and yesterday, there's that BZX thing. Yeah, BZX coin. And I'll be honest, like I tried to go read, well, what actually went on there? And I can't say I understand it yet. They got double tapped again today. Yeah, yeah. It would take me a few days of carefully going over things to actually say, well, what happened? And, you know, like compare that, say, Tether, where if, you know, all the Tether money disappears, we'll say, yeah, it's pretty obvious what happened. So, (laughs) So this is where I actually like I'm happy we're coming back full circle now towards the end, because this is uh, it's really nice. And what I mean by that is um, here's a situation where it's all about optics, lying and marketing, whereas um, I will recommend companies like um, BlockFi or Nexo or whatever, where these companies are saying, hey, we're not decentralized. Rather, this is we are a custodial solution. We are relending your money. And they're not they're not calling themselves decentralized finance. Those type of companies, while someone wants to come to me and say, hey, Charlie, like you're a big, you know, decentralization. These are not decentralized. I'm like, oh, that's OK, because they're not saying that they are. But then you have these other ones like BZX and and make or die and, and whatever. And I don't want to come down on them yet because I don't like you like you. I don't I, I haven't looked at one thousand percent, but I can say with full faith that those are more dangerous because they claim to be and their optics and their marketing and their blog posts are we are decentralized finance, and that's the problem. Well, uh, you, you know, like look at Zcash, where of course I was involved in that trusted setup, and all they had to go do was say, "Hey, our first trusted setup didn't go that well. You know, here's where the problems are. You know, we have this issue where we can't really verify like what the you know what the actual code did. We'll go try again better next time." And I'd be like, "Yeah, great, no problems." And frankly, I, I think from a PR perspective, had they done that, they would have been fine. You know, like. After all, like I was, cons- you know, consulting for Matthew Green for a while on it, and what I kept telling him was, "Well, why don't we just have one guy run it and say, just trust us?' <laughs> you know, like that would be good enough for the market." Yeah, it's it's does it, but it's not within the ethos of what what why we're here. I would still be much happier if they just gone and said that and say, "Hey, here's the limitations of the tech at this point. We'll try to go work on something better next time." Ryan Selkis agrees with you. I had him on the show as well. And he pushes for uh, disclosures and, and, and transparency. And he said something very interesting. He said, Charlie, if a company came to Masari, you know, to, to have their data on our, in our database, but that the company said, hey, Ryan, we're, we're decentralized finance, but we're not there yet. We're not decentralized yet. That would be good. What he was trying to say is disclosure and transparency doesn't, need, doesn't mean to be that it needs to be good news. Right. It's like going back to the old like VC would say, hey, we're going to invest money into your company, but don't just come to us when the news is good. We want to hear about about it when it's bad. Uh, Oh, if you go to like the open timestamps Twitter account, uh, you'll see right at the very top. It's saying very clearly open timestamps is trust minimized distributed timestamping. It is not 
you know, trustless and it is not decentralized. Oh, you just reminded me of something too. And and, and it's good that you say that. Whatever happened to BitMessage? You know, I'm not actually sure. Yeah. I haven't uh, used it in a long time. <laughs> I know. Chances I are, like, because it is a decentralized thing, chances are you can still use it. I'm surprised that it never took, I remember, I think, I think it's because the guy who wrote, I forget his name, ended up getting hired on as like the lead engineer for a major co- Bitcoin company. I forget what, what exactly happened, but I think, but I think you're right. I think it's still, and how that, that that's the coolest part about some of this technology is that it could be abandoned. Um, do you remember Multibit? Multibit was, was uh, abandoned for a long time, um, just very lightly kept maintained, but it still works. And even now yeah. it still works. The older versions of it are well, stable and still yeah. work. And keep in mind, like, multi-bit still works because Bitcoin has used soft forks. You know, Bitcoin has not done hard forks that prevent older software from working. And I think that's really important um, for a lot of social reasons, too. You know, and again, I'll like compare this to, uh, you know, something like Zcash, which, you know, I I can use that example because I've looked at it carefully. But it's, they keep doing hard forks. And not always for, like, really necessary reasons. And what that means is I can't go audit sort of newer software with older software. Where on Bitcoin, it's very easy for me to audit newer software with older and make sure it's still doing the same thing. You know, soft forks can push this boundary a little bit. But for instance, you're, you know, if Bitcoin Core released a version that made you know, 22 million Bitcoins, it would get noticed pretty quickly because that's not a soft fork. But I don't even think it's that. I don't even think that would be the issue. If 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 the I think the issue what you you mentioned social, and I think when you have a hard fork and it makes what happened earlier incompatible with the future, that's this, when this whole thing would fail. I think that if if right now tomorrow they launched something uncontroversial like a new address format, but they said that. Um, the, all the old addresses wouldn't be compatible with the new system and people would have to move. I think Bitcoin would, 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 that would be something that potentially could uh, be a very big hindrance towards the future adoption, adoption of Bitcoin. Do you agree or disagree with me? You know, I agree, but only because that's how Bitcoin has been evolving. You, you see, the, the difference between that and, you know, your Zcashes or your Monero is like another example where they do frequent hard forks is that, they've set up a precedent that they'll go do frequent hard forks. And under that circumstance, you can get away with things like that much easier. But the risk is you have one, t- you know, one developer team that has far more power and can do far more to the protocol and can get away with it. And there are examples. Um, uh, was it Z Classic, if I remember correctly? Yeah. They created coins out of thin air. In, uh, some, you know, it's kind of hard to understand what the heck actually went on there. But it sounds like a developer on their own initiative decided to go and defraud the rest of the community by creating money out of thin air. And they you know, pretty much would have gotten away with it if someone hadn't uh, finally noticed well after it happened. Wow. And that's the kind of thing that hard forks let you go do in a way that soft forks don't. You know, like, like with all this stuff, you need people to actually go look at the code and actually go run different versions. And it's it, it's a tough thing to to do if you keep putting people on a treadmill of upgrades. Hard forks should be reserved for emergencies, um, detrimental, you know, existential threats. I mean, you need a really good reason. Yes. Uh, Bitcoin so far hasn't really needed one. And, you know, um, I I think you may have mentioned before the, 
um, Berkeley DB uh, example. Back in 2013. Now that everyone cites that incorrectly as the, the the single time that Bitcoin did hard fork. Yeah, and so there's first of all, there's some really early stuff that some people would argue were hard forks. Some people wouldn't. You know, that gets into really nuanced technical discussions. But the Berkeley DB ones, I think, kind of interesting because prior software didn't work reliably. So it went from something where it may, you know, arguably it didn't work reliably enough to even call it a hard fork or soft fork to then something that did work reliably. And I've kind of gone back and forth on this and my views on this. Um, I know Gregor Maxwell, who I've often talked to about this, he's um, stood much more firmly on the side that that was a soft fork. You know, for all I think, no, that's more arguably a hard fork, maybe a soft fork. But I think the important thing there is ultimately that's an example where something was very, very wrong technically, and there wasn't really a choice. You know, you had to do something or the software just didn't work. If something like what happened in 2013 with um, upgrading, a, you know, just just to, to explain to the listeners very basically what had happened, because I think about this, um, we had simply up, upgraded to a different type of database that, that the Bitcoin blockchain was, was um, you know, being used. Uh, if that were to happen again... Where, um, actually, can you explain better what happened? You can explain better than me what exactly happened. Well, basically, so at the time, um, Bitcoin, you know, what's now called Bitcoin Core, was using this database engine called Berkeley DB. And Berkeley DB had some bugs in it. And the long story short of this is some of the time blocks would get rejected due to these bugs. Now, if a block's rejected and you know, a different block is accepted, then effectively you have a difference in opinion on what, you know, what constitutes a valid chain and why these blocks were rejected had nothing, you know, sort of no rhyme or reason, if you will. Like it didn't have anything to do with, you know, what transactions were allowed or any of that. It was for sort of very technical reasons that are really of no interest to actual Bitcoin users. And it's a very undesirable situation to be in. You know, nobody wanted these blocks to get rejected. So the solution, um, which was already kind of in place at the time, was to use this other database called LevelDB, which in theory should have worked the same way as BerkeleyDB, but LevelDB didn't have these limitations and thus would accept these blocks. So you kind of get three three possible abilities there. Some oh, Berkeley wow. DB, yeah, some BerkeleyDB using nodes would accept the blocks, most wouldn't, and then all of the level to be ones would. Oh, I thought it was either that it would and it wouldn't. I didn't realize that some would and some wouldn't for, for yeah. Berkeley. Yeah, this is why it's harder to clearly say it's a hard fork. And you know, if it was a, if it was more clear cut thing, it would be a better argument there, but it wasn't quite so clear cut. But I, I think the bigger picture though is like from a social point of view, this was clearly some kind of bug that shouldn't have existed. You know, there's no, like, th- th- this isn't like, well, all right, you know, should someone be allowed yeah. to do this type of transaction or not this, right? Now, the fortunate thing is because what Bitcoin's used for is relatively simple, there weren't secondary effects. And when we've seen this in the Ethereum community where, and uh, I'll see if I remember the details right, I, I think some, something around like one of these sort of multi-sig bugs that they had, they had multiple node implementations that all did different things. And on top of this, they have a human text readable specification that, you know, no one actually goes and uses. And then the specification then in turn disagreed. And because money was at stake, as in 
you know, should or should not this get changed in such a way we can get our money back, that sort of ups the political ante of it a lot. Whereas with the level DB thing, fixing that problem was pretty simple. You know, tell miners, hey, you know, use this version that accepts the blocks and we're good to go. So back then, we were able to get all the miners, all the major companies and everyone in an IRC chat room. And it was, you know, it, not that it was not scary, but well, it, it was all it solved was, in one night, basically. If it, that were- it was actually even better than that because a lot of people were using um, the level DB stuff. So you didn't actually have to get everyone in the room. You just had to get a small subset of that to kind of push it over over the edge, if you will. Ah, uh, yeah. And yeah. then what was really beautiful that uh, is never talked about was that the miners who had made money, you know, paid back the miners who lost money. There was like a transfer of, of financial, you know, there was a, a um, just for, for, for no rhyme or reason. It was just because of for the betterment of the whole community. I want to go fact check that, but you may be right. I mean. That's, you know, it's a good thing that should be fact checked because I remember it was being spoken yeah, about, but I don't know yeah. if money was actually moved. Uh, I, I think I think the bigger point there is the amount of money at stake, even in things like that, was a lot less than, say, Ethereum in their debate over, you know, do we unfreeze these multi-sig frozen funds? It, like A lot more money, especially in terms, you know, comparison to what the people involved had, was at stake there. So, same thing as with um, uh, the... Was it the Ethereum reversal? You know what, Peter? I think, I think one of the best properties that Bitcoin has that no other coin or token will ever have is that the Bitcoin price was relatively low, uh, low volume, low price, and the Bitcoin price wasn't even a thing. It wasn't. It was barely traded. It wasn't even spoken about. Bitcoin was given away freely. Thousands of Bitcoin you can get for free or faucets for years, for years. And it allowed us to get rid of the kinks, deal with the bugs when you don't have a lot of money at stake. And that is the perfect example. No other, every other coin or token, their, their job, their marketing, their everything that they do is to get the price of their token to go up. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Like, I remember when uh, Zcash came out, the highest price Zcash has ever had, you know, it was basically within like an hour or a few, a few days of release. I remember that. It and, was crazy. Yeah. $300 a coin or something. Oh, I, 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 I may be wrong on this, but I think it was like even specs of like 1500 or something ridiculous. And, you know, the volume was still relatively low then. But I, I could imagine if I was in that position, I mean, I'd be terrified. You know, you have so much money on the line for completely new software with completely new cryptography. I mean, it makes me glad Open Timestamps is not a paid project. <laughs> wow. Um, and I'll point out another thing, too. It's with coins, remember that you have consensus. So it's much harder for two groups to disagree. See, you and I could disagree on the direction of Open Timestamps. And, you know, maybe you'd implement some different features than I did and vice versa. And that would be fine because we don't need consensus across our two use cases. You know, you're allowed to disagree and it doesn't really matter that much. And in fact, right now, if you actually look at the open timestamps implementations, um, one of them recently removed Ethereum support. And the one that, you know, I developed on Python uh, open timestamps didn't. But it doesn't really matter because there isn't consensus. For the listeners, so, can you just explain what Open Timestamps is? So it's uh, it's software that 
proves that data existed in the past. And the simple answer as to why this is useful is the bad guys don't have time machines. And if you can say that something happened prior to when an attack could have happened, often that's enough to rule out the attack. Um, you know, one of the easier examples of it, well, suppose you have a digital signature on a file and the private key that created that digital signature gets leaked. How do you know the signature is still valid? You know, because after all, the, the bad guy who now has a copy of the private key, he could have faked the signature. Well, if you can prove that the signature was created in the past before the leak happened, then you can still validate the signature. A very simple like utility of this is someone who tweets something and then deletes that tweet. But if you can get it, you know, open timestamp it, if at some point in the future, Twitter is controlled and owned by, you know, a, a company that we don't like and decide to go back and change or even remove, like what could possibly well, happen? To- well, but, but remember, the, the, there's a flip side of that. So you talk okay. about a tweet. If I could, for instance, timestamp as many different variations of a tweet as I wanted and then pick which one I reveal in the future. You know, th- this is why timestamping is also much more limited than I think people realize. In w- like where it works best in that kind of example is where I, you know, the way you interpreted some tweet in the past, it would have been, say, innocuous. But now I have proof it existed in the past prior to when the significance of it would be known to the person who could have gone and timestamped it. Yeah, this, like, there's, there can be a, it really depends on the situation, but there can be a lot of thought that has to go into it, into exactly whether or not a timestamp's valid. Digital signatures, it's very easy, um, simple, clear-cut case. When you're talking about tweets, things get complex pretty quickly. Wow. Blowing minds here on on untold stories. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We we went over our yeah. time a little bit, but um, I need to have you on again because I had a bunch more topics. Um, what a, what a wonderful show! Um, definitely blown well, to minds here. Thank you for for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, and I'd be happy to be back. Amazing. Enjoy enjoy the winter, and and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Peter. All right, you too. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.